Hello, and welcome to episode one of Your Grandparents' Textbooks. I'm Robert Turner, and all I do on this podcast is read excerpts of books that are at least several decades old and out of print that used to belong to people's grandparents. Now, before I continue, I know what you might be thinking. This sounds like a boring podcast, and I hope it is. In fact, the reason I started reading my own grandparents' textbooks is because I was trying to bore myself to sleep. But a funny thing happened when I was reading. I found several curiosities in the texts, little things that I had to go look up or I found some sort of interest in. And maybe that'll happen with you as I read these excerpts. Or maybe not. Maybe it'll bore you to sleep. And maybe that's what you want. Either way, I hope you enjoy. And let's dig right in with Elements of Chemistry. Okay. Okay, Elements of Chemistry. Real quick, just describing this book. It's, uh, you know, your standard book size, about maybe five inches by eight inches. And uh, big bold type says Elements of Chemistry on the front. It's got a very 1940s-esque picture of a young man holding up a test tube with some sort of liquid in it. I'm going to flip open. There's a lot of hand-drawn art, actually, in this book. It's very interesting. I'll try to describe some of it as I go. Uh, but the one thing that caught my eye in the very beginning is actually a photo. And it's captioned, The Chemistry at Work. And it's from Life magazine says, in wartime, chemistry is essential to both offense and defense. In peace, it supplies our needs and luxuries. Only the tireless research of chemists insisting on evidence for every step can produce, restore, and replace vital materials. That's pretty strong. And then it's got a, a photo here of uh, a chemist with all sorts of colorful concoctions and weird apparatuses going on. You can imagine it, but it's only one guy sitting by himself, just twiddling away. Interesting. The foreword reads as follows. A global war brings home to everyone the vital and basic services of chemistry. Our newspapers, newsreels, and radio programs all tell the need of chemical materials. Not only those used for war, but also those in our foods, those required by doctors and surgeons, and others that give us our conveniences and pleasures. We know that if the civilization we enjoy is to survive, we need all the help that chemistry can give us. It is the duty and privilege of chemistry teachers to make this subject so attractive that it will stimulate pupils to their abilities and talents and so be ready to assume the responsibilities that will come to them. A widening knowledge and appreciation of chemistry may accomplish things yet undreamed of. Just as wide appreciation of truth and beauty produced the great art and poetry of ancient Greece, and as the faith and sacrifice of the Middle Ages reared great cathedrals as symbols of their religion, 
our chances of having more chemists better trained and equipped are increased if the whole people understand the nature of chemistry and the kind of problems it can solve and if they are made aware in a new field that truth is humanity's best friend. To make pupils more chemistry conscious, the authors of this book have sought to present the subject so that it will be as interesting to the beginner as it is to the adept. New conceptions hitherto rarely taught except in colleges have been brought within the range of understanding of young pupils by starting the presentation with everyday experiences. Theory has been simplified throughout the book. Important additions have been made. Many new drawings by the skilled artist Theodore R. Miller help the young pupil understand the texts. New significant photographs have been sought and found in many quarters and generously distributed throughout the book. The authors have associated chemistry with comfort and beauty in the home and with the creative work of the homemaker as well as with that of the artist or the manufacturer. Some of the history of the subject is given, bringing out the drama of its rapid evolution. Brief statements on some scientific methods and attitudes reveal the distinctive character of scientific thinking that makes possible the almost miraculous achievements of chemistry. While this book follows a succession of texts by the same authors, the material has been so carefully restudied and so thoroughly rewritten as to offer a wholly new presentation of elementary chemistry. In making the changes, suggestions from many teachers who have long used these books were a distinct help, and for this friendly assistance, the authors extend their thanks. Okay, after reading that forward, um, I get a few things. One is the uh, general thought at the time is that... Uh, a lot of responsibility was being placed on these students that we have. Um, I mean, comparing things to the the art and poetry of ancient Greece and the faith and sacrifice of the Middle Ages um, and instilling the need to have people who are interested in chemistry to produce, you know, things that haven't even been dreamt of yet in order to save our civilization. That was kind of the message I was getting. Uh, as a student, that could be a little bit intimidating, but maybe if that's the predominant thought of the time, that that's what a student, you know, does, is they uh, they tackle these large responsibilities. Maybe that was a little bit more commonplace. I think today, though, if a teacher came in with that sort of rhetoric, the students would be a little bit overwhelmed and say, oh, man, we, we're going to have to shoulder the burden and uh, really you know, carry civilization for the next couple of years, so better study. Um, could, be a, could be a little bit intimidating. Not that that's what students don't do today anyway, is they do progress, but I don't think the, uh, I don't think they're told straight to their face, hey, look, you know, it's up to you in order to make civilization's dreams come true. <laughs> so, with that thought, I'm going to move on to... It, there are several 
contents here, you know, the, the table of contents right after the forward. Um, and you can see, it's interesting, you can see my grandfather's notes in the side. It looks like he had classes on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and in each class they would cover a chapter. Uh, in total, there are, let me see, it looks like there are 43 chapters. And it kind of goes in order. Um, so starting with one, two, and three, it's chemical changes, then oxygen, then hydrogen, uh, moves on to chapter four, water, and then introducing more and more complex subject matter as you go. Um, so atoms and molecules, then going on with formulas and how their names and how the compounds are named, moving on to how the symbols and how the formulas get used, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one thing I found interesting was chapter two, which is oxygen. And it starts off, every every chapter starts off with a uh, hand-drawn illustration. So let me flip over to page 12. And this is the chapter on oxygen. And the header is a hand-drawn uh, little picture of it's a woman at a stove with a tea kettle and two pots and one of the pots is steaming and she's stirring that and then off to the side there is a cat napping on a shelf with two plants above it and the caption was what just got me because it just seems so odd it says the flame like the plants the cat and the woman requires oxygen and that was just the first caption that kind of caught me off guard um, how these are being related as it said in the foreword a lot of these subjects are being related to the homemaker or to maybe somebody in manufacturing um, so there was a actual intent to relate this to a certain audience um, and it just goes on further in this chapter to prove it is one of the first pictures is uh, titled Oxygen, Life's Universal Need. And the picture is just a house and a driveway in the country surrounded by some woods. Um, nothing really special to it. But the caption is all about chemistry. And it reads, At this farm in Enfield, New Hampshire, oxygen is a necessity, not only for the fire whose smoke we see, but for the life of the trees, shrubs, and grass, as well as of the chickens, cows, and other animals. That just seems like an odd uh, thing. It just seems like a random picture. But if you think back to that foreword, the authors are trying to address this to specifically homemakers, at least one part of their audience. So it seems a little bit out of place. Uh, but once you think about the context, it might make a little sense. Now let me read a little bit of this chapter to you because there's some funny things in here, um, particularly for me, how they tell you to identify if something is oxygen. So here we go. Chapter 2, Oxygen. The chapter starts with a big bold statement that says, Oxygen, an abundant active element. 
Oxygen is one of the chemical elements that play the most important parts in our lives. Nearly a quarter of the weight of the great ocean of air around and above us, and eight-ninths of the weight of all the water of the earth is oxygen. It unites with so many elements that we cannot dig into the earth anywhere without meeting its compounds. Fully half of the surface material of the earth is composed of compounds of oxygen. The life activities of plants and animals depend a constant, excuse me, demand a constant supply of this element. The cooking of our food, the heating of our homes, and the development of mechanical power depend upon oxygen. This element fascinates us with the wide range of its chemical reactions, varying from its quiet combination with iron in rusting to its terrifying activity and explosions and great fires. In our laboratories, we study at close range many of the actions of oxygen. The next subsection is discovery of oxygen. As we have seen, oxygen was first obtained with Priestley heated a red, excuse me, when Priestley heated a red powder secured by heating mercury in air. By heating the powder at a temperature somewhat higher than that at which it was made, it is decomposed into a gas, oxygen, and a metal, mercury. This is an easy way to get small quantities of the gas, but it is too expensive a method for practical use in obtaining larger amounts. The next subsection is preparation. Although oxygen may be prepared in many different ways, the common laboratory method is by heating potassium chlorate. This compound, which is composed of the elements potassium, chlorine, and oxygen, melts when heated and then loses its oxygen. The residue is potassium chloride, which is a compound of potassium and chlorine. We may express this change as potassium chlorate becomes potassium chloride plus oxygen. This expression is called a word equation. The arrow is to be read yields and the plus sign and. So if I'll go back and read that right now, it's potassium chlorate yields potassium chloride and oxygen. Now back to the text. It is better to mix another compound, manganese dioxide, with the potassium chlorate because the decomposition then takes place at lower temperature and goes on more evenly. A material that changes the speed of a chemical reaction without being permanently altered itself is called a catalyst or a catalytic agent. In this one case, the manganese dioxide is a catalyst. In most other cases where we shall use manganese dioxide, however, it is permanently changed in the chemical reaction. Oxygen can be obtained from water by the use of the electric current, but since water is not itself an electric conductor, some substance, such as sulfuric acid or sodium hydroxide, must be dissolved in the water to permit the passage of the current. These substances are not changed in the reaction. Water yields hydrogen and oxygen. A cheaper method of obtaining oxygen in quantity, however, is to liquefy air 
and let its nitrogen escape first, since nitrogen boils off at lower temperature than oxygen. The collection of gases. Priestley devised a method for collecting gases by displacement of water. This is used in a collection of oxygen and of other gases which are but slightly soluble in water. Soluble gases are collected by displacement of air. Gases cannot easily be collected in pure state by this method, since air being a gas mixes with the gas being collected. It seldom happens that the products of any chemical action are obtained free from impurities. In getting oxygen from potassium chlorate, a whitish dust is often carried from the generator along with the oxygen. On standing, this dust will settle into the water, leaving the oxygen as clear, colorless gas. The physical properties. Physical properties are those which can be studied without producing any chemical change. The physical properties of pure oxygen gas are not striking. It is without color, odor, or taste, and is a little heavier than air, volume for volume. Oxygen is soluble in water, but only slightly so. Under ordinary conditions, 100 volumes of water dissolve about 3 volumes of oxygen. This small amount of oxygen absorbed from the air by natural water is of great importance. Fishes could not breathe without it. It makes our drinking water more palatable. It helps to convert into inoffensive materials decaying animal and vegetable matter into our streams, rivers, and harbors. In the waters around large cities, the amount of dissolved oxygen may not be sufficient to dispose of all sewage, and, as a result, the water at such places may be dangerous. Oxygen can be compressed. When compressed and cooled enough, it condenses to a pale blue liquid. On still further cooling, it solidifies. Liquid oxygen is magnetic. It boils at 183 degrees Celsius. The chemical properties. These are the kind that can be observed only by studying chemical changes. The most noticeable chemical property of oxygen is the tendency to combine with other elements. Nearly all elements unite with oxygen to form oxides. Oxygen in the air makes ordinary fires possible. It also combines with many things so slowly that there is no noticeable heat or light. Oxides. An oxide is a compound of oxygen and another element. The red powder of Priestley and Lavoisier is mercuric oxide, since this powder is a compound of two elements, mercury and oxygen. The oxides of metals are solids, but a number of oxides, the carbon dioxide of the air, for example, are gases. Water, an oxide of hydrogen, is a liquid. When a substance unites with oxygen, Oxidation is said to occur. Combustion. And this is the last segment that I will read. Combustion is any chemical change by which noticeable heat and light are produced. Oxygen is not necessarily concerned, but the most familiar case is ordinary burning, in which a substance actively unites with the oxygen of the air. There is a great rise in temperature, and light is produced. Thus, when a piece of coal burns, the carbon of the coal combines with the oxygen of the air to form carbon dioxide, a colorless gas which passes off unseen. 
At the same time, a considerable quantity of heat is given off, and the neighboring pieces of fuel become red-hot. Substances burn more vigorously in oxygen than in air, since only about one-fifth of the air is oxygen. A glowing splint plunged into oxygen bursts into flame. This action furnishes a convenient means of recognizing an unknown gas as oxygen. Charcoal glows much more brilliantly in oxygen than in air. Sulfur burns in air with a pale blue flame in oxygen vividly. Steel wool burns in oxygen, giving off bright sparks. Ordinary burning is oxidation accompanied by noticeable heat and light. Now one last thing I'd like to add here. The thing that caught me was uh, in that last paragraph, the authors actually said, that a good way to recognize if something is oxygen is to take a glowing splint and plunging it into it and seeing if it bursts into flame. The actual sentence was, a glowing splint plunged into oxygen bursts into flame. This action furnishes a convenient means of recognizing an unknown gas as oxygen. Now, I'm no chemist, but to anybody listening out there, if you have a volume of gas that you don't know what it is, I don't think that taking a lit stick and poking it in there to see if it will catch flame is a good way of determining if it's oxygen. Be smart. Try to figure out something else. And that's all that I'm going to read from the oxygen section right now. Okay, I'm flipping the book closed for right now. I think that was a good intro. And what I got out of this was that the book has an interest in audience that it's trying to address. And there are also some very interesting narratives. But it does a very good job of going through the history of how certain bits of chemistry came about. Um, and it's still relevant today for the most part. But the overarching themes would not exist in chemistry books today. I'm sure there are overarching themes in our own chemistry textbooks. But back then, the themes were what was presented in the foreword, that chemistry needs to be something that is attractive and will stimulate students. And it also is very important for the development of civilization, and that there are going to be challenges as we go forward, especially post-war time, where chemists are vital. And today, I do believe that we have a certain responsibility placed on our students, but it's not as bold as that forward made it seem. So, those are my closing thoughts, and maybe I'll read a little bit more of this book sometime. Maybe we'll move on to something else. In any case, I will see you, talk to you soon, in the next episode.